What's in store for your business this week at Staples? Doing business like a CEO while saving like a CFO. Staples has all the supplies you need to run your business like a boss at prices that'll make your bookkeeper smile. Now that is an achievement. Everything from markers and pens to 2019 desk calendars. And right now, a 12-pack of Sharpie markers and an 8-pack of Expo dry erase markers are only $4.99 each. At Staples, where there's a whole lot in store. Ends one nineteen nineteen in store only. Blog Talk Radio. tuning in. You're listening to Corrales Radio. My name is Jeff Godbold. I'm the host. And uh, today we've got a pretty good show. We're going to be talking about uh, two of my favorite species of snakes out there, um, annulated tree boas and cave dweller rat snakes. Uh, Both are somewhat nuanced and still pretty rare in the hobby, but uh, I decided to reach out to a friend of mine, uh, Terry Burwell, and bring him on to talk uh, about both these species because he's kept both, he's bred both, and um, I think it would be a kind of a fun show. Um, I do like to do a lot of uh, off-topic stuff, especially some of the rare colubrids. So um, you guys will probably be seeing more of that stuff here in the uh, in the upcoming shows. Um, but uh, we do try to keep the theme pretty 
pretty uh, straightforward with uh, corallus species. But uh, I do want to get a, a quick shout out to our sponsor, Reptile Basics Incorporated. If you guys haven't had a chance to reach out to Rich over at RBI, um, he's a great guy to work with. His product is rock solid, um, fair, uh, fair uh, prices on all of his uh, racks and cages. And he's got, uh, you know, he services the other facets of the, of the reptile community because he provides all the different uh, husbandry needs that you could possibly want. So if you haven't had a chance yet, make sure you reach out to Rich over at RBI, uh, Reptile Basics Incorporated. You could hit him up on the web or you could reach out to him via Facebook. Let him know that uh, Jeff Godbold sent you over from Corrales Radio, and uh, he'll get you all hooked up. So anyway. I just wanted to give everybody kind of a quick uh, run through of what's been going on with me uh, before I bring Terry on. Um, I've been uh, kind of streamlining my collection somewhat, um, trying to thin out a few uh, side projects that I uh, have kind of accumulated over this past year uh, to year and a half. Um, And so I'm really wanting to go the route of uh, working mostly with Corallus, uh, species and uh, I do have a couple species that I will work with, like Loma pythons, um, diamond uh, pythons, and I do want to dabble with a few species of colubrids. One being cageola rat snakes, which makes this uh, kind of a fun uh, episode for me personally. Um, but uh, the other thing is, I wanted to. Um, let everybody know that I'm also going to be um, doing a little bit uh, more work with Brazilian rainbow boas. So it should be a lot of fun, um, but without uh, further ado, I'd like to bring on Terry and um, go ahead and get the show started. So, Terry, you with us? I sure am. How's it going? Good, man. How's, how's it been? Uh, doing real good. Doing real good. I'm just licking my wounds after after yesterday's jujitsu session. I know. I know. We we had talked about. Uh, yeah, it's my apparently my new hobby is is jujitsu. I just took it up two weeks ago, and yesterday was the first time that we really kind of got into sparring. And I just had my butt handed to me over and over and over again for about an hour and a half. So it was, it was That's great. Awesome. <laughs> That's funny. I have a friend that that does a lot of that, and um, I had talked about training with him to try and get a little bit more um, involved in that and. Um, I definitely see that coming in my direction. Uh, uh-huh. I've always been interested in that stuff. I'm not like, I'm not big I'm on like um, MMA stuff and whatnot, but I am big on uh, making yourself hard to kill and, um, you know, uh, defensive uh, measures, whether it be through firearms training or, or uh, you know, some type of MMA training. So yeah, I think that's pretty yeah. cool, man. So definitely. Awesome. Definitely. Well, um, before we get kind of into the nuts and bolts of what I brought you on, or would you mind giving the uh, the listeners a quick run through of kind of how you got into reptiles and uh, how that's brought you to the collection you have currently? Yeah, um, my wife and I were talking about how to how to explain this in less than a less than a forty five minute um, explanation, but basically. Uh, I grew up in a rural town in Montana. Well, I was born in a rural town in Montana and um, would ride around with my dad a ton um, between farms and stuff. And and he 
um, if he would see a, a rattlesnake on the road or a bull snake on the road, which both species are pretty common up there, uh, he would stop and we would get out. And if it was a rattlesnake, he'd kill it and cut off its rattle and give it to me. And if it was a bull snake, he'd, you know, take it off the road. And <clears throat> so that was what I would say is my first, uh, my first exposure to snakes was anyway, and reptiles pretty much. And then we had a ton of garter snakes around that area too. So, um, you know, I played with garter snakes a little bit, but the first animal that I kept in captivity was a tiger salamander that my, my older sister had found at her house. And she brought it to me um, one day before kindergarten. I, I remember it vividly. It was in a cool whip container. It was full of mud. I didn't know what a salamander was. And by the time that I got home from school, my mom had gone to the library, read everything there was to know at that time about how to keep salamanders in captivity. So when I came home, I had uh, an aquarium with the, the dirt and the charcoal substrate and the the copper penny and the water bowl and there were mealworms in the refrigerator that I could feed it and stuff. So they my family was really supportive in in keeping wow. um, you know alter, alternative animals you know and uh, especially mealworms in the fridge you know that was uh, pretty big a bomb and and it just kind of blossomed from there. So in first into second grade I moved uh, my family and I moved to Kansas and. Kansas is just a mecca for um, for herps of all kinds, and so it wasn't long before I was catching ringneck snakes and um, black rat snakes and stuff like that, and uh, and I couldn't keep them in the house, uh, so uh, my dad and I we made a little place in the garage, and so I had my aquariums in the garage out there, and I kept rat snakes for for several years, and then uh, it just kept it just kind of kept going. We moved from there to Wyoming, and in Wyoming I. Um, I had a Noah's Ark of animals um, all through elementary school in my room with predominantly lizards and a few snakes. And then as I got older and um, more interested in in being with my friends and, and chasing girls, really, I I didn't want to feed my snakes as much as I wanted to be out, or I didn't want to feed my lizards as much as I wanted to be out. And so, um, so I kind of made it kind of a natural transition towards snakes just because it was uh, less of an obligation, and and I've just kind of been snakes ever since. So uh, I still do really love uh, all reptiles, and and um, but right now all, all I keep are snakes, and um, I have a, a small colony of morning geckos as well. But um, that's where we're at now. Um, in my adult life, I did a backpacking trip um, in 2008 um, through 2010. And I worked at a crocodile farm in Australia, and that was that was just really fantastic. It really opened my eyes to um, other people that like reptiles because I, I didn't grow up with friends that liked reptiles. I was the only person that I knew that kept reptiles. I was the only person that I that subscribed to the Vivarium or Reptiles magazine. And uh, so I didn't have a lot of people to kick this around with or, or anything like that. And so when I was at this crocodile farm in, in Rockhampton, Queensland, it was just really neat to be around other people that that not only liked reptiles but worked with them on a daily basis, and then they knew, you know, all about the, the Australian species, and that was pretty cool. And so when I got home, I, I said, I really want to work with reptiles, and so I took a job, um, their volunteer gig, in the Amazon. It was about six weeks, and um, there was a, a herpetological team and a bird team and a mammal team. And essentially, uh, this PhD student in uh, in England was running a project 
in southern Peru on the effects of ecotourism on wildlife. And so they were they were basically we were doing visual encounter surveys. And so I went down there to to uh, survey the herpetofauna of the area. And so we got to go out at night and um, you know go kind of we didn't have to go with guides. We just we just kind of could go wherever we wanted and and walk wherever we wanted and stuff. So we were really unlimited in what we could do and and that was a huge eye-opening experience and it was really um really beneficial. And then again, surrounded by these people that know, you, you know, we could, we could um, quiz each other on Latin names, you know, of the different species and we were looking for, and then we could go out and find them that night. And that was really, really exciting. So when I got home from that, uh, back to the States, uh, I, con- I continued to pursue um, work in, in, uh, a field that would allow me to work with snakes. And so I took an internship at the Kentucky Reptile Zoo and um, my education just, just blew up um, from there. And uh, Kristen and Jim were, were huge in, in teaching me a lot of about um, snakes and a lot about um, captive husbandry and the way that they do things, taking care of a large collection. Um, my venomous snake knowledge, which was very small, just, uh, it was like, it was like going to college for venomous snakes. I mean, it was, it was a fantastic experience. And, uh, and then herping, uh, I'd done a little bit of herping in Kansas and then what I'd done in the Amazon, but I hadn't done uh, much else. And then, uh, one of the previous interns, Taylor Tevis, he would come down when he wasn't, uh, in school up in Cincinnati and we would go herping together. And so I remember the first night, uh, first day we met, he said, Hey, do you want to go look for spring salamanders? And, and I never herped for salamanders ever and growing up in the desert in Wyoming. And within 15 minutes, there we are looking at spring salamanders. And then we start road cruising and we found like 53 marble salamanders that night. And, and so a lifelong friendship was, was formed that night. And so we would, we'd clean cages all day and then we'd go, uh, go herp all night. And in Kentucky is fantastic for Northern copperheads, Eastern milk snakes and, um, and the salamanders, it's, it's got great salamander game as well. So, uh, so that was cool, really man. cool. Yeah. yeah. I think that's probably similar to a lot of us, um, you know, you know, grow up. That's kind of how I got into it is I, I always had a fascination with dinosaurs when I was like real small. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the older I got, um, we moved to a house that was, in a neighborhood that was pretty undeveloped and there was a lot of stuff. I grew up in Florida, so there was a lot mm-hmm. of, oh, yeah. of Bonna to kind of observe. And I remember times where, and I remember in junior high school, my, uh, and into, in uh, elementary school, my bus stop was at a bunch of, um, I guess there were, some, I look at them now and they're kind of just like really wide creeks, but they were like, we called them ponds back then, but, um, mm-hmm. I remember showing up on my doorstep just covered and drenched in mud and water and everything with like either <laughs> a mouth in a bucket or like big uh, cooter uh, turtles and stuff like that. I was always catching stuff. So I should have been on the bus, but I was down there playing around trying to catch, uh, you know, reptiles and all kinds of stuff. So, oh yeah. Um, yeah. That just kind of fostered, you know, my enthusiasm for enthusiasm for that stuff. And then my adult life. And then when I, I also lived in South America for um, a couple of years down in the Amazon. And um, when I was down there, 
same thing. I just, everything I saw just kind of piqued my interest. So when I got back and I was in a place where I had enough resources, I started, you know, buying up different species of snakes and kept a hodgepodge mm-hmm. of stuff that, you know, was really just to have it. And then I started fine-tuning where my interests were. But, um, you know, annually there's tree boas and cave boa rats have always been um, high on my list. Now, I've never seen any annulatus uh, in, in person. I did, mm-hmm. um, I used to work with chondros exclusively, and I did uh, have an outstanding debt that was owed to me by a, a fairly prominent colubra breeder, and he sent me a bunch of uh, Ridley eye. And oh, okay. um, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't really into them. I, I didn't like colubrids at the time. I was only keeping chondros, and um, I was like, oh, I just, well, he owes me some money, so I guess I'll just flip these and see if I can make my money back. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, he sent them to me, and I remember posting them, and I started getting people hitting me up, like, left and right for them. This was back in, I think it was back in around 2006, 2007. And um, I didn't have them very long. I think I sold, he sent me, like, a third of his, his clutch, and I think I sold them all within, like, a week, a um, couple uh-huh. of weeks. Um, and, but I remember as I was delivering them to people, like the last few that I had, I was delivering to people. They were, you know, I would meet them, you know, different places. And I remember thinking, these are pretty cool. You know, I wonder if I'd like to work <laughs> with these. And so, so it's, it, the interest has always been there, obviously for annulated tree boas. I kind of, I've never worked with them before. So they've always been a little bit of a mystery to me, but, um, both mm-hmm. are very much on my short list. So, uh, cause I've, would like to get back into Ridley Eye at some point, you know, if I was going to work yeah. with any colubrids. But um, yeah, let's let's go it's ahead and start talking about. Go ahead. I was going to say it's pretty rough when you're because I've done the same thing where I'm packing a snake up to deliver to or or to ship out to a customer, and that's when I really look at it and think, oh man, this is really I should not be selling this. I should be keeping this, but at that <laughs> point, it's too late, you know. I have I have been there. I have been there for sure. That's exactly it. <laughs> so <laughs> let's go ahead and so I guess we'll start with uh, talking about um, Corallus annulatus and uh, kind of okay. you know the last half of the show, and then we'll get into the uh, the Ridley Eye. So could you could you give us a rundown of kind of like your group and kind of what piqued your interest with that species? Yeah. So. Um, Ever since uh, ever since Australia, I was really interested in the arboreal stuff. I ran into um, the the brown tree snakes, and I loved the way that they moved and the way they looked and everything. And then that made me look more at um, more at just arboreal snakes in general. So whether it be um, you know boas, pythons, colubrids, vipers, uh, that sort of thing. And I just really really loved it because up until then, my 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 knowledge with, with snakes or the snakes that I'd kept the most were Burmese pythons. And, um, and so it managed just really spark my interest. And then, um, Amazon Alliance was really doing good, good work with, um, the content and, uh, and the website and everything. And I feel like Amazon tree boas were just getting a lot of attention and, um, or a lot of exposure. And I just thought they looked super cool. And they they really fill the same niche that um, that the cat snakes of 
of the old world do, the, the Bowiga of the old world. And um, I thought, man, man, this is super cool. So um, Amazon Tribo has really, really caught my interest, but I wanted, I always want what people don't have. I want what people can't find, or I want the, the uncommon thing. And so I was looking more at Ruschenbergii, and I thought, well, I'll get, a, I'll get some of those. And then I kept an eye out for those, and I was cruising the, the Facebook forums um, one night, and Fascination Herp had a pair of annulated boas up. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, adult annulated boas, it was like midnight when I saw the thing. And I, I saw, oh, my gosh. I hadn't even thought about annulated boas because I just figured, no, I'll never be able to find them. You know, I figured that they would be too rare or whatever. And now I understand that they're not as rare as I thought they were. Um, but they still are very uncommon. And uh, and they're not impossible to get, but, you know, if you if you know the right people, I suppose. But, but to just jump into it or, or to stumble on them by osmosis, kind of like that, or just kind of by accident, uh, I feel like was was very fortuitous for me. And I... What's interesting is that I had put a deposit down on some dog tooth cat snakes and I uh, hadn't taken delivery yet. And then I saw these and I emailed the guy back and I say, Hey, look, it says, I understand if you don't want to give me a, a refund then I'll take the, the, the dog tooth cat snakes. But I said, if you'll give me my money back, I said, I would like to take my money back and back out of this deal. And he was super gracious and, and, and he allowed me to do that. And so I used that money to buy the, the annulated tree bows. And, um, but I, I was worried about all night and I couldn't sleep. I woke up at four o'clock in the morning to, to purchase. I sent the money to fascination herb at four o'clock in the morning because I didn't want somebody else to wake up and get them before I did. And uh, so, funny. so I just, I have, um, I have 1.1. I have one pair of, uh, of adults and they're from, uh, uh, so fascination got them in trade. Uh, from a guy, and I was able to track that guy down and ask him about where he got him, and he told me that um, that the female was from Paul Bradshaw. It's Paul Bradshaw. It's my understanding that um, that he's passed away now, but he um, he's very um, very well known breeder of annulated tree boas, and he just he had him he had him dialed in, and so uh, Paul Bradshaw was my female, and then he said the male is quote unquote unrelated. Um, and so that's the group that I have and, uh, and they had, uh, you know, then that's, that's just, that's kind of what I had. And I, I had hoped to breed them. Um, but I was, I wasn't in any hurry necessarily. And so I didn't think, um, I wasn't cocky necessarily and think, Oh, I've got these two and I'm going to put them together and I'm going to have babies and that's how it's going to work out. So, um, so I just kept them for, for about a year and, and I kept them separated and I just took care of them and made sure they were good and healthy and, and I just enjoyed keeping them. And, uh, these, they take quite a while to mature. Don't they? Don't they take like five or six years? Yeah. So when I got them, um, he said that he thought that they were about seven years old and I got, them, Oh, okay. Um, I got them in 2014 Okay. Uh, I think. And so, um, so I got them in 2014. So they bred the f- they bred for me in 2000 the 2015 2016 season. 
So they would have been nine years old by that point. Oh. Now, so, yeah, how I, big was your definitely? How big was the litter? How big what? How big was I had the eleven litter? babies. Eleven Ooh, babies. Eleven. No, no dogs. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's funny. You brought up Amazon Alliance. I used to love that forum. Um, yeah. Now, I, that, most of what I keep are um, Amazon. So, how big are mm-hmm. Amazons? Like, if you take a big female Amazon in comparison to a big female annulated. What's the size difference? Um, I w- <clears throat> annulateds are larger. However, an an adult, I mean, a sexually mature Amazon tree bows, because Amazon tree bows now, I have not, I've never kept them. Um, oh, okay. They don't, they, they don't take very long to reach sexual maturity, do they? Two, three no, years. No, no. You can, yeah. Well, for you can breed a uh, a male at. 18 months, easy. Okay. Uh, you can breed females okay. at four years. Um, most okay. males don't go till around two, but females will go at three to four. Um, okay. Obviously, I think waiting a, a little bit extra uh, will yeah. always be beneficial for the female um, and the male mm-hmm. probably. But um, so that so that's yeah. interesting. So if you look at a sexually mature annulated tree boa compared to a sexually mature um, Amazon, you could be looking at an Amazon that's half the age or a third or a quarter of the age as, as, a, as an annulated. So um, mine are, I mean, I wish I had a weight before, but the, the weight that I have after she laid or after partrition was 785 grams, but she was super skinny at that point. So she put a lot of energy into those babies and now she weighs about double that. It didn't take her long um, to gain that weight back. So um, from, from what I've seen and I've seen Amazons in, in the wild um, annulated, I would, I would, I think an annulated bow is larger at an adult size than a, than an Amazon is, but they're, yeah, it sounds like it. They're pretty similar, though, I would say, as far as size. Their, their head shape and, and other characteristics, are, I feel, aren't, aren't the same. But, uh, right. But in terms, of, now, in terms of length and stuff. Are they, are they pretty shy and, and timid, or are they fairly uh, aggressive or, or not aggressive, but defensive? Or, uh, what's the temperament? I would, like? not, I would not. Yeah, the two that I have, and, and that's the – I think that's the thing with uh, with annulated tree boas that a lot of people say is, oh, they're, they're they're so tame. It's a tame tree boa, you know. It's the only tame corallus or whatever, and uh, they're not um, they're not defensive. I've never had a defensive strike. I've never had, um, you know, they'll they'll watch me definitely. And I used to have them up high in in my um, in my snake room where they were on the top at about six feet. Uh, in a cage, and if I was ever feeding or if I was ever in the room, uh, they all have arboreal highs, and they would come out of their arboreal hide and they would just watch me, you know, and uh, see if, you know, am I getting fed today? And But it wasn't, I mean, there's no striking the glass or anything like that, but they have a, my pair has a fantastic feeding response. Um, the babies that I have also have that, that good feeding response, but it's not, uh, it's not savage. I mean, they don't go crazy. And um, I've not had them 
I've not had them try to strike me in a defensive manner ever. And you can handle them. You know, when I first got them, I, I, I have a tendency to when I get an animal, I don't want to break it. And so I, I set it up and I leave it and, and I don't look at it, you know, for a while. I just I let it settle for a while. And I got to thinking about right. it. And I thought, well, if I, if I have a tame tree boa, like this handleable tree boa, then why don't I go out and handle it? And so I started getting them out, you know, and, and holding them and just, just being in awe of them. And, um, and, and she bit me. <laughs> she never bit me. But uh, so it, it, it wasn't, uh, but again, it, it wasn't like a huge defensive strike or it wasn't because she was necessarily uh, upset or stressed or anything. She just, it was sort of like that anaconda, just, you know, I'm looking at your hand, I'm looking at your hand, your, your hand looks kind of tasty and just slow motion opened her mouth and, and just kind of clamped on. And, um, but I've never been bit by them since. And, and I don't handle them much, but um, um, if people come over that, you know, that haven't seen them before or anything like that and, and are interested, I'll definitely get them out and, and let them have a hold because it's, it's a pretty neat, it's a really neat animal. It's a pretty neat experience to be able to do that without any fear of dis- them, you know. Do they display? Or they don't they display, like kinda- No. No, they don't display very well. In fact, when my female started uh, started to bask in the open and started, uh, there was a while where she was soaking in her, in her water bowl, and I thought, uh, I wondered if my room was too hot or something. Um, and when she started to bask in the open, I thought, this is really strange. Because um, in the daytime, usually they're they're hiding for sure. And they'll, they'll cram their, I, I have uh, the Reptile Basics hide boxes. I've got one on the ground. And then I've got one um, attached to the ceiling of the cage. And they're, they're usually in the one in the ceiling. But they'll be in one or the other. And they like to, uh, they like to cram themselves in, into little spaces. Like the uh, – um, I have uh, – I used to have them in vision cages. And the, um, the 222 has the shroud. And I would take a big piece of styrofoam, thick piece of styrofoam, and I would jam it in between the, the light shroud and the wall of the cage. And so it sort of made a, a little shelf up there and they would get up there in the ceiling and they would kind of cram themselves up in, in, in there. So they really do like tight spaces. And so in the daytime, it's pretty rare that you'll see them out if you don't have food in your hand. Um, but at nighttime, they come out very regularly and they'll be out roaming around. So you were kind of describing your cages, um, or the inside of the cages. What what size cage do you keep them? And what what are the temps that you get? Yeah, so I, I started out with I started out with um I had kept them in three foot by two foot by two foot uh JPM reptilia cages. They're the um like a bar cage. And uh-huh. um I had put in I had started with I was really concerned about humidity. You know, and I thought, oh man, I'm, I'm, they're, they're going to need super high humidity and everything. So I had coconut core on the bottom, and then I had sphagnum moss on top of that, and uh, I had a misting system all ready to go. And then I had, um, I had put in PVC perches, but I didn't like the look of them, and I don't think they're that 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 functional for a snake that's not going to rest like a chondro or like a uh, emerald tree boa would. Um, they're not like a, like a tree branch. And so I took driftwood and I zip tied it to the PVC to make it a little, a little bit more, uh, Oh, asymmetric, I guess you could say a little bit, a mm-hmm. little bit varied, uh, perching abilities. And, 
and then I had a I put an arboreal hide, so I I didn't want to poke holes in my in my brand new cages, and so I got some super strong magnets and I attached those to the top of the cage, and then I I glued those to the hide box, and then that way it, it would just attach to the to the top of the cage, and uh, and then a big you know a big water bowl Pyrex glass water bowl, and that's what I had, and and I had uh, for heat. I just had a uh, we call it a poor man's poor man's heat panel really, and it was just a, a piece of flex watt that I put over the top of the cage, <clears throat> um, above a, bas- a basking point, and it wasn't efficient at all. And so I I had used that for a while, and then once I realized that she was gravity or was approaching gravity. I took that flex spot and I put, cause she couldn't lean up against it. She could, there was no contact heat and there wasn't that much mm-hmm. radiating heat either from that setup. And so I ended up putting it over to the side so that she could, uh, she could lean up against it on her, on her perch. And that, that worked a lot better. Um, but I think a, a radiant heat panel would probably be the best, the best thing to do. But, um, but I, st- I stopped misting them. I didn't, I, I had a, a live plant in there to begin with, um, just a pothos plant in a pot. And at nighttime, the transpiration coming off the plant would increase the humidity so much you couldn't see through the glass. It would be so foggy. And so I ended up taking the plant out really quickly. And um, and I just – they never showed any behavior that, that told me that they needed to be misted or that the humidity wasn't high enough. And so I just I just didn't. And there were some times that I would – I would miss like if it was raining outside, um, and, and I just wanted a little different, uh, a little different behavior. If I thought I was inducing re- breeding behavior, I would miss the the sphagnum moss part of it. But I've I've never to this day I've never sprayed them directly. Uh, and then my snake room at the time, uh, and still today, it varies between about seventy to 80, 84, 85 degrees. Um, outside of the cool period it's, it's, and so that's the setup that I've that, that I've got that's the setup that I bred them in and then um, now uh, I've got the female in a vision cage that's uh, that's very similar it's three feet by two feet by 18 or 22 inches something like that and then the uh, the male is in a, a 222 so that's 28 inches by two feet by two feet and uh, I'll be pairing them up next month September it won't be long in uh, November. I'll be pairing them up in November, so the male will come out and, and What's go the into the female's like cage. So. What With was the, the bar cages, like it's pretty... Enough. Yeah, the bar go cages ahead. is really minimal. Um, they didn't have... Because I didn't up for the screens, and so um, there's there's very little ventilation. There was a, a couple vents in the back, and then... Um, and then in the vision cages, it's it's a little bit better. You know, they've got the screens in the back, but they still do hold humidity pretty well. But I've never had a problem with shedding uh, um, or anything like that. And I'm in Texas, so I think that that says quite yeah. a bit. But but they do drink. So I mean, they'll drink they'll drink a lot of water, so from a water bowl. Huh. Yeah, they. Uh, you know, I used to have a bunch of bars cages, and I have had them with and without the screen. So I was kind of curious when you're talking about the humidity, what the, uh, what the 
you know, if she had the screens in them or not. And, and I had a problem with visions too. I couldn't keep, I had a really hard time with the 222 in the house that I lived in. I had one and I mm-hmm. had a heat panel in there and never seemed to, um, I guess that my room wasn't heated, so it was a little mm-hmm. bit more on the heat panel, but I had a hard time getting the temperatures up on that. What temperature is your room at? Uh, between 70 and 85. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, at nighttime, at nighttime it would drop down in the 70s. Because um, I, and, and that, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty far, far shift. So at night I put my AC at 75 for the house, and the snake room doesn't get that low. Uh, but um, towards the towards the fall and the winter, it definitely it definitely would. But normally, during the summer, outside of cooling, um, seventy-five to eighty-five is a pretty good, pretty good range that it doesn't, it doesn't ever venture out of. But I hear you on those vision cages in Wyoming. With, with I had the um, Burmese pythons and the six thirty-twos, and I had to tape all the vents and had a huge water bowl and and a misting system, and I still, it was tough to keep the humidity up. Right. Well. Mm-hmm. You might. I mean, I don't know what part of Texas you're in, but are you on Eastern Texas or? I'm in West Texas now. I was in Austin. Oh, now, we're in, now we're in West Texas. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was gonna say because you're in Eastern Texas, the humidity can actually be pretty high over there. But. Oh um, yeah, yeah. It'd be, it'd be a lot easier to breed snakes in in East Texas. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> they've got a lot more storms and whatnot. So we'll get a storm, but it'll only right. last for five minutes, and then you then you got to wait another month and a half for the next one. Yeah, well, I'm living in Northern California now, so we don't really get rain unless it's in the winter time. So I hear you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, pretty dry during during the year. But uh, mm-hmm. well, that's cool. So you're you're looking at breeding these guys, I guess, the second time. What's the gestation like, or what was it like for the first litter that you had? Yeah, I can give you the whole rundown. So the the 2015 yeah, season, um, I. I got a lot of help from uh, from Jeff Murray. I reached out to him and just asked. Um, I asked questions, and if anybody had any advice, uh, if I saw it on Facebook or cruising the forums, I was quick to write that down and to to go back over that over the notes. And um, and there's a there's a paper of them being uh, bred in Fort Worth. I think it's pretty popular, as well as a an article in the Vivarium. So I was cruising for all that information. And um, what uh, what Jeff really told me was, make sure you pair them up before you start cooling them down. So I paired them up at the end of November, November 23rd. No, yeah, I paired them up at the end of November. So November 23rd is when I introduced the male. And then I didn't begin cooling until December 28th. And you would you would think that, well, there's going to be some natural cooling, and maybe there was at nighttime. But I remember in Austin in December, it was 90 degrees a couple days. And I remember with my colubrids, I had put them, I'd put them in a deep freeze out on the porch with, uh, with heat, with heat rope in the bottom on a thermostat thinking I would just have to heat it. And I had to end up turning the freezer on in order to get it cold enough, um, in Austin, Texas, but to brewmate my colubrids. But anyway, I began cooling them, um, at the end of December. And then, um, but I, I did, and I had to look at my, um, look at my notes here but I continued to feed them uh, throughout the cooling. And I I would say I got them into uh, 
I, I wouldn't say I got them below 65 for any length of time. So I think in the low 70s, the upper 60s, it's kind of where they were at night. Like if it if it would be cold, I would come home and I'd open the window for a couple hours before I went to bed. But I'd make sure I didn't leave the window open all night. And then um, I was working on oil rig at the time, so I was gone two weeks out of every month. So there'd be two weeks where it was just whatever the room was, and and we we tried to keep the heater you know down pretty low and and try to keep the the house as cold as we could um, during that time. So the cool down was 28th. Um, I did feed them a couple times. Ate in December. They ate a couple times. The female ate a couple times in January, and then. The end of the cool down was in um, was in February at some time, and then I separated the male on May 17th, and I never saw copulations. I never uh, I never witnessed locks or any courtship behavior, but the the male and female were in the hide box together for for about a month, and um, it it kind of goes back to what I said. I don't want to break them like. I don't want to bother them as well. It's like, well, if they are breeding, I don't want to check on them all the time, and then it makes it to where they're not breeding. And so I kind of just kind of left them to their vices, and I was definitely checking on them to see if there was any um, – to see if anything was going on, if there was any problems. But I, I didn't bother them. I never pulled them out during that time. And I ended up separating the male uh, on the 17th. And I'm sure um, that's when I saw the, the female basking a lot, and she she completely went off food. And so she ate in January, and she didn't eat again until after she uh, had the babies in July. So it was it was eight wow. months or – yeah, it was eight months. She didn't eat until August. And um, I offered. I offered all kinds of stuff, chicks and African softwares and rats, and uh, but she just wasn't interested. And I, and I took that as a good sign, um, but I was just concerned that I really hoped that I'd fed her enough in the preseason, you know, that, that she would make it through and everything would be good. But she really started basking a lot. She started, um, like I said, she was up against that, as close as she could get to that heat type when it was on the ceiling. And that's when I realized, I said, man, something's not right. And so I put it on the side, and she would just go straight up to the side of the cage and push her whole body as much as she could on the perch. And so I would turn the heat up a couple degrees, and then I would come back in an hour and see if she was still there. If she was, I would turn the heat up a couple degrees more and see if she was still there. And I and I got it to where it was it was hot enough to where she would just she wasn't like plastered up against the wall, you know. So she would be next to the wall, but and she was getting that heat, but she didn't have to. It didn't look like she was lacking any heat. Um, and and she basked for a long time. And like I said, that's it was pretty unusual behavior. And I, I had hoped, you know, I had hoped, I was like, well, this, this is definitely unusual behavior, and I thought she might be gravid, um, but I, I didn't have any previous experience um, with, with boas or, or, or of any kind, and so I didn't want to kind of speak outside of turn, and, and so I just kind of waited, and, and um, she did get bigger, and of course she looked gravid, you know, and there were some days I was like, oh, I don't know, and... and um, if she wasn't gravid, there was definitely a problem because she wasn't eating. And so um, then on, yeah, July 29th, um, I went to check on them in the morning, and there were 11, 11 dark little babies all over the, all over the cage. And it was, it was weird because when, as soon as I walked in, 
she was on the floor at that time. We had moved from Austin to uh, to South Carolina in in the summertime, and so this was during that move, and uh, set up a new snake room in in South Carolina. And as I walked into the snake room, she was on the bottom, and I could see the kind of the afterbirth and everything. And I thought, I thought, oh no, she's slugged out. And then I look in there, and there's all these anywhere a baby could be, a baby was. It was it was just a really really cool experience. Oh, so she had she ended up having eleven babies. I didn't find any slugs, and um, it's been documented. Annulated boys will eat their own infertile ova. They'll eat their slugs. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's a possibility. But she was so skinny after that that I don't I don't know that that was uh, that, that that had happened. But um, the keepers that I've talked to that that has happened, they it, it's as if they were there right when and they saw the whole thing and and it seems like they kind of eat them fairly immediately but um but they all popped yeah. out they were all healthy and they're about 16 grams the babies were about 16 grams oh and so what the day the... I, I got the numbers here Go i think it was a hundred and it was 132 days from what i consider her pre-lay shed so her, her shed was in march and then she laid in um in july so that, that's 132 days. I don't know if that's a good marker for boas or not, but I didn't see an ovulation. So that that was kind of the only marker that I had. That's kind of an average for Amazons, actually, from okay. post-ovulation post shed to – I mean, they could go anywhere from 110 to 100. I've even heard all the way up to 150 or 160, but that's kind of rare for them to go that long. It seems to be the mm-hmm. 120, 130 is kind of the norm. I've got one girl right now that's at 130. Uh, I don't know when she's going to drop. I'm starting to, I'm trying not to get nervous, but. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I didn't have to wait that long. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Uh, But that, yeah, yeah. that's, that's, that's very cool. So what, was it hard for you to get um, baby started or were they, I mean, I don't think corrals are that difficult to feed from what I've gathered from across all the species, but I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it really wasn't. It, 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 yeah, fortunately, it really wasn't, and um, which was which was a real breath of fresh air because I, I deal a lot with rhino rat snakes too, which can be which can be a pain in the butt. So it was nice to have something uh, that it, it it wasn't a big deal. I did have a couple that um, that held out, and but but I fed them and I, and I sort of feed them before they shed even. So their first shed, they were born at the end of July. Their first shed was mid August. But I fed them, or even late August, mid to late August, and so I fed them um, a couple of them even before they shed. And wow. I was actually feeding, I was feeding some other animals, and I just, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just try it. Uh, you know, I had a, a, a pinky, and I said, I'll just try it. And so I tried it, and a couple of them just, bam, they took it. And I thought, oh, man, this is fantastic. And, of course, several of them didn't. And... Um, so I went with live, and and uh, the live ones went really well. And then I had uh, I had a couple that they they fed really good the first couple times, and then the next few times they it was like they really wanted that prey item to be warm. And so I had a, a desk lamp, and I would heat I would heat the pinky on the desk. Lamp. I would just set it on the the shroud of the desk lamp, and uh, let it get hot. And then, and then I would take that, and I would, I would, I would offer it, and that made a big difference. So, um, so they really cool. wanted it, really wanted it warm. And 
And then for the holdouts, I fed um, – there was one that I had to assist, assist feed for a while. And it, it wasn't difficult, and she, she really took to it really well. But I, I assist fed a tail, and then I would um, – I, I found out that if I assist fed a mouse tail and let her finish eating it, I could train feed a pinky right behind that tail, and she would continue to swallow it. And so I did that for a little bit. And then um, kind of a side project is I, I had a friend bring over some Japanese quail eggs and I hatched some out and I put a Japanese quail in there and, and which seemed at the time to be way too big of a meal, especially for a snake that's not eating. And she, she clobbered it. So um, that was pretty good. And then, and then after that, I, I tried a couple um, uh, mouse crawlers and, and she took that and then, and that was off to the races, frozen thawed from from there on out. And you can't tell now. That was, I mean, that was a runt. That was a runt, and it's you can't tell anymore that it was a runt. It's totally caught up. Yeah, I would think that in the wild they do feed quite a bit on uh, birds or or hatchling chicks or whatnot. Um, yeah, or lizards yeah, and stuff. Yeah, or lizards. Yeah, or you know frogs even. But it, mm-hmm. it's funny because a lot of species, like I used to keep a lot of candoya. And Candoya, mm-hmm. you know, they prefer the, they start off with frogs and and lizards, but getting them to switch over, same as a lot of the West Indian boas, the Trilobothrus and whatnot, they really have a mm-hmm. hard time, you know, switch, switching them over. Which Corallus, you know, it seems like they would start off on the same prey items, but they're not. It, it's not hard to to. I mean, you don't even have to start them on that. They'll take anything. I, you know, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me. You know, that you can yeah. have multiple species of different genuses that start on the same things, but one of them, you don't have to start them on that thing, that, that prey item in, in captivity. You can start them right off yeah. on, and you I, know, mice and whatnot. And, and I, yeah, and I wonder how much that contributes to um, generations, uh, subsequent generations being born in captivity, you know? Sure. Because I know with, with, the, yeah. with the, you know, with the Pacific boas and the, that kind of stuff were we have captive born animals, but how many, you know, how many generations of those do we have? And, and, uh, that, that's kind of interesting. Like it would be interesting if we got say Corallus grenadensis in, you know, that are predominantly, you know, lizard eaters. If, if we, you know, if they would also take, you know, pinkies pretty readily or, or if we'd be scenting them just like we are, um, you know, Dominican red mountain boas or, or some of those boas that aren't, haven't been as established for as long. I don't know. Sure. Interesting. But I was, yeah, I, I was very, very pleasantly surprised that, that they ate. They, it wasn't a problem to get them to eat at all. Yeah. I, I think it would take someone but with a lot of spare the, time to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I want them to do it um, and then sell me the offspring. Yeah. I'll be happy with that. Right. After you're there, like four or five generations in of uh, uh, pinky eaters. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. And a note, real quickly on on prey. uh, Since we're since we're on the topic of prey, um, I've been told by other keepers, you know, to really to really make sure you don't eat you don't feed prey items too large. And I haven't had a problem uh, with feeding the adults. I've never had a regurg or anything like that. And I and I have fed. um, At first, I was very I was very cautious. I was feeding um, you know adult mice to to the snake that could, you know, if it were a, if it were a carpet python, it could clearly take a large rat. And, um, 
but I was being very, very cautious. And then I, I just, I just thought, I, I think they can handle it. And so I have fed my adults, you know, up to a medium rat, but with the babies, um, I did have one regurge and die almost immediately afterwards. So I don't know if that has something to, I don't know if that has something to do with it, but it was a baby that was eating very, very well. And, um, and it is seemingly very, very, I mean, perfect, just absolutely perfect. And then um, it regurged one day, and then a couple of days later I went in to check on it, and it was dead. So they're, they're, wow. I definitely recommend taking it slow on, on upgrading the size potential of the prey when they're young, you know, if that, that might be an issue. Yeah, I think that's probably safe with a lot of, uh, a lot of species. But, I mean, these guys mm-hmm. are so slender, right? I mean, I appreciate you being forthcoming with that. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't want to disclose that, but you know, it's good mm-hmm. to know that you know the failure is just as much as the successes. So that folks know what to avoid. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, there's not, dude. I'm trying to think right now of how many people are working with these guys. I can only think of like four or five off the top of my head that, that actually keep them. I don't know how many people in the in the outside. I mean, I, obviously there's probably some outside the U.S., but inside the U.S., I don't know too many. Um, I'm like, yeah. I'm thinking of you. Jeff, Jeff Murray's a great guy. Ben Russo has some. I think Dan Maleri has a pair. Um, mm-hmm. There's not too many. There aren't. No, there aren't. Even in zoos, you know, I know National Zoo has some, and and I know one of the keepers there, and I was really. Really, at, you know, I was kind of asking him. I was like, "Hey, you gonna are you gonna try to breed yours, and I'm gonna try to breed mine, and you know, let's swap stories and and all that thing." And and I I don't think theirs went. I don't even know if they tried to breed them, but um, but I'm pretty sure theirs didn't go. But but yeah, I I agree. I don't think there are very many people working with them. And then those that are working with them, I don't know how many of those people are having success. Like I know Dan has them. I think Nick Mutton has a pair as well. But I I haven't heard if if they they had re- reproduced them or not. So, and Nick that could did very well his. just be, okay. Nick, okay. I Good. think Nick's produced his either, I know for a fact once or maybe twice. I was talking to him about them last year at the local show that he's in. And, okay. He, he, and his, he's actually kind of interesting with his because he said that his had, he had raised them up and I could be wrong. So Nick, if you're listening to this, you can correct me, but I think his he tried it five years, maybe it was four years. They would not go, and then he brought mm-hmm. in the next year. So he 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 also is of the mindset that they need to be a little bit older before they can breed. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking that, um, and his litter, if I'm not mistaken, was only five. So he had a fairly small litter, okay. and I want to say his adults were around five years old when he bred them, but I'm not positive. He might be okay. You know, he could probably correct me on that, but. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, they are definitely a, a, a species that I think, from what I've gathered, you could answer this better than me, but they seem very rewarding. But you do need to be patient, you know. Yeah. Um, yes. And I don't think they're all yeah. that difficult would, to keep. It doesn't seem like it, but no, breeding's a no, little bit more of a challenge. Yeah, and really just patience, you know. And and I was thinking about it when I had the babies. I I didn't offer any of them for sale. I kept them because I was like, no, I'm I'm not. Gonna, I thought if I was going to gift some to some people, but I wanted to keep them. You know, I was like, this is fantastic. And then I thought, I'm going to have to keep these for eight years, maybe a decade, you know, before they're of breeding age. 
I thought, man, that's, that's a commitment right there, you know, to raise them all up and stuff. And so, um, so I was, I'm pretty excited to, to be able to, um, put them out into the, the world of herpetoculture and get some, some people, you know, excited about them and working on them. I really would like to see more of the colored phenotype available because it seems like the brown phenotype is, is definitely the most common. And I don't know if there's some natural selection there or what, but you would think at least in herpetoculture that there would be a, um, a bias towards the, the colored phenotypes because there's some really pretty, you know, yellows and oranges, um, in this species that you, you just don't see very much of. Yeah, there, I know. I know Jeff Murray has some really pretty oranges, mm-hmm. and some he's got a couple that are like a mix of an orange and tan a little bit. Um, I mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen this picture or not, but Harlan Wall sent me this picture of one that he brought in as I think it was a wild caught. Maybe it was one that was born from a wild caught. I don't remember. I've got the mm-hmm. picture somewhere. It's like brick red. I mean brick oh, wow. red, yeah. and it's a and it's a it is 100% annulatus. I mean, there's no dispute whatsoever. Um, it, mm-hmm. And I have never seen one that is that red before. But Harlan said that that was probably those were that he used to see them come in like that. I mean, I don't I haven't seen any red ones in anyone's collection, um, you know, anytime recently. So yeah, uh, I do know that they can. Mm-hmm get red though you can find them mm-hmm. yeah yeah it would be great to to get that phenotype out there for sure and there's um i don't know if you want to call it calico or piebald but in in the fort worth paper um they talk about one that um turned white like it turned piebald at four years of age so it was born normal interesting it was normal for three years and then just it just you know lost pigment and and the the ones I have, and you see it, it's really common that they'll have some white scales, you know, in their, um, mm-hmm. on their body. And, uh, my, my offspring, they all have different levels of white, you know, but, but it's really interesting to, to know, like, okay, is that, is that something that can, um, can increase, you know, like, like it did in that paper, um, and then in, uh, the Vivarium article, there's a picture of one that's almost completely, completely white i mean it's 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 wild it looks like a calico almost um so yeah i mean there's there's a lot there's a lot available in in this species so i'm i'm pretty excited about it i hope more people get into it for sure yeah i well it's on my it's on my list i i want some so bad it's it's uh i've got a few species that are really high on my list and uh, those are those are one of them um I've been kind of thinking about my own collection, and I've been thinking that you know most of the stuff that I'm I find the most intriguing of of everything is stuff that's all from south and probably the more tropical mm-hmm. part of Central America. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that's kind of where my collection's headed. It's more um, right now. I'm thinking like Amazons. Um, I'd like to get some northern um, emeralds, uh, annulata. Mm-hmm. I'd like to get yeah. um, some. You know, I, I've got some uh, Brazilian rainbows, which I, I think are really fun. And there's a few species of colubrids from Central America that I like. I like the Cribos. I like the the, um, the tiger rats and and all that stuff. Um, but yeah. you know, I do I do like some of the some of the uh, there's a few other species that I like that are not from from that area. But 
Um, these are really cool, though. I definitely, I'd love to see you get more success with them this next year. I, I think that's awesome. I, you know, as soon as I can get some money to play around with, I'd definitely like to get one. Yeah, so. definitely. definitely. But um, well, let's, let's kind of merge over into uh, your cave dweller uh, rats and and uh, okay. let's let's talk about those a little bit. Um, that's probably my actually, you know, it's funny. That's that's probably my favorite species of colubrid, this cave dweller rat. Uh-huh. And and I just had never seen them or heard of them. They kind of came to me off a of happenstance. I remember when the breeder that I was mentioned earlier in the show was talking to me about um, kind of settling a debt, and, and he's like, you know, are you interested in colubrids? And I'm like, not really. You know, like mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. gonna throw some some corn snakes and king snakes at me or hog nose, I'm probably going to turn you down and just say I'll wait on whatever you owe me. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. if you have something kind of unique, he goes, well, what do you think about, you know, have you ever heard of cave dweller rats? And I said, nope, I haven't. <laughs> that doesn't say a whole yeah. lot because I don't really have any experience with colubrids. And he said, well, they're kind of a foolish lavender color. And he was kind of explaining to me, you know, that in the wild they eat bats and they like to, you know, there's no heat that's needed for them and how easy they are to care mm-hmm. for and all this stuff. And I was like, all right, yeah, they sound cool, dude. Just send me a, a group of them and I'll take a look at them uh-huh. and I might sell them later on. I was not enthusiastic about it. I was just kind of like, whatever, let's just settle this thing and, and move forward. And um, he sent, sent them to me and I was like, wow, kind of cool. They've got kind of like that bluish head and like that color pattern is really neat, you know? And I was like, these are really unique. Yeah. I'd never seen these before. And, you know, uh, since selling them, I, I wish I would have played around with them and kept them because I had, I had a few that I could have tinkered yeah. with. But, um, yeah. Your, what makes up your group? You, I, I know I've heard of the different locales and whatnot. I, I mean, is, is that, are those claims ever valid or like, what, what are, what are you working with? My, uh, I have issue with the whole uh, Cameron Highlands locale deal, and and I would love. I, I don't know if it's a locality, and maybe it is, or or if it's um, just a phenotype within within that area. But I've been to the Cameron Highlands and in, in, in Malaysia, and I've seen. Um, I, but I didn't I didn't go hunting for for K-dwelling rat snakes while I was there, unfortunately. Um, but had I known. But I have seen there's a there's YouTube videos of um, people in the Cameron Highlands with wild um, Ridley eye, and they're not you know because people we, we market the Cameron Highlands locale as the ones with with the the bluer heads and the really peachy orange bright orange throats and first third of their body and then that black and yellow uh, tail and um, and it's a so pretty it's an outstanding um phenotype and then the other phenotype is just kind of a more gunmetal gray head with a, a cream um cream body and then going into that black striped tail and that's the phenotype that i had and um and uh i understand that you know a lot of people when they would they would contact me and say you know hey you got these you know can i can i see pictures of the parents i would just tell them i said they're not they're not the colored ones you know, and and they say, oh, because so many people they would see pictures of the parents and they say, oh, I want Cameron Highlands, and so um, I talked to uh, 
I talked to the Zirkles about this because I, I wanted to know, you know, and I said, is this, is this legit? Like, is that a thing? And I, I think his answer was, was really wise in which he says, look, he says, I don't, I don't know what the locality is. But he says, what we say is we have colored ones and we have non-colored ones because they breed both. And, um, and right. I said, man, I, 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 really, I really like that. So it's not necessarily claiming that one comes from one place or another. And maybe they do, or maybe one comes from one cave or one set of caves, or maybe one is found in caves and one's not found in caves, you know, um, predominantly. I don't know. Um, but as far as the color goes, that's, that's the way that I understand it. And, um, and, uh, and so I had the, I had the, the gray ones and it's kind of interesting. Um, I don't want your listeners to think that I, I back out of every deal that I get into, but I, I had looked for these <laughs> for so long that, that when I was looking for them, I made up my mind that that's what I wanted. And I was looking for them for so long that I, I was responding to, like, I would send private messages to people that had them uh, on Fauna, you know, seven years ago, you know, and I was just like, hey, do you, you, you know, what are the chances that you still have them or that you know where they went, you know, and I would just try to track them down that way. And then, uh, and then Ted Thompson put a picture on Facebook, either that he had eggs or he had babies, I don't remember, but it wasn't a for sale post. And, and I private messaged him right away and I said, "I, I want a pair. Just tell me how much, and I sent him the money that day. And I was just like, I, I, want, I, I don't care. They haven't hatched. I don't care that they're not eating yet. I just, I've been looking for these so long, and I want them so badly um, that, y- you know, here's the money. And so, so they were ready to go, but it was so hot, we, we didn't ship them all summer. Well, in the meantime, Russ Gurley throws on uh, a pair of adults for sale. And, and so I snagged those up, and now I've got these adults, and then – I got the adults before the babies got there. <laughs> I thought, what? Well, oh, I don't really need these babies now, but but I received them after the after the summer. I received them and uh, and took those as well. And um, and the the adults were great. And I didn't know how they were going to be, you know, being an Asian rat snake and and all that. Um, I didn't know if they were going to be super aggressive or super defensive or or they were going to musk all over me. And so um, I was pretty cautious pulling them out of that bag. And mine mine have been nothing but 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 really calm and um i i ended up naming the female angel just because that was my uh um kind of my expectations is that i thought they were going to be a handful and she was really nice she was really nice she was really tolerant of a lot of things and they were kind of silly in that you could get them out and you could handle them all you wanted and then you could put them back in their cage and they would go all the way into one cage and as soon as they were in they would turn around and then they would hiss and strike at you um which is kind of silly but um, but they were really well-behaved snakes that I had, um, and, and so I liked that. And so I just had the the, uh, the two, um, that adult pair, and I bred them over the 2014-2014 the season, and then I picked up um, a sub-adult female uh, from somebody in Florida who they wanted babies, and so I ended up trading babies for this, this sub-adult female, and I was really excited about that. And so I, I fed her up. Um, for about 18 months, and I tried to get her to go this 2016-2017 uh, season. But um, I had uh, I had success in 2015. I had success in 2016, uh, but I did not get uh, I did not get eggs out of either female this year. Um, and I have a couple a couple clues and a couple theories as to why. But um, but uh, I'm also kind of stumped as to why as well. So. Um, so that's kind of that's there, kinda 
my my group. They're pretty pretty easy to keep. Like they don't require any supplemental heat or anything, right? Yeah, and that's that's what what's really uh, opposite to other beauty snakes. Where you know the kind of the theory to other beauty snakes is you know keep them hot and feed them a lot. Um, yeah, the the cave dwellers. I kept them on the floor uh, at room temperature, and they never had any problem. I I cooled them down. Uh, I didn't put them into like a brumation like I would my rhino rat snakes or my milk snakes, but I did cool them along with uh, like the pythons um, in the same right. room. And <clears throat> and uh, I didn't have any problems with, with them. The only problems I had with them was with shedding. And so it was super important to have uh, uh, where I live a humid hide because um, that was the only the only issue I ever had was was with shedding with them and the, and the humidity. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I kept mine pretty, on, on mulch and never had problems with, with though. I mean, I didn't have them for a uh, yeah. long time, but I did have some for a short time and I kept them in, in a rack system with mulch and they mm-hmm. seemed to, to shed fine. Um, and the babies, but, the the babies were never an issue. The babies were never an issue. It was oh, just the okay. adults. And usually it was, usually it was only the female. And, um, interesting. And so, yeah, it's kind of, I don't know if that was, I mean, obviously it was something in my husbandry, but um, some, I, but I would keep some of them, I mean, exactly the same side by side, and like the male would shed perfectly, and then the female wouldn't, you know, and just require a little <laughs> bit extra. But, you know, I, I gave her a little bit extra, and, and then she was fine after that. But, um, huh. but uh, so, yeah, that, that's how I kept them. So the so there's two distinct. I maybe I just need to look at them more. I I'm I've heard of like the different type uh, or the more colored type, but I don't really know the difference if I was looking at them because I think they all look kind of just as pretty as one another. But I you know I don't know mm-hmm. um, what but what's the difference between the colored ones and the non-colored ones? All <clears throat> um, uh, I've, I've put a bunch of pictures up on the the Corrales Radio Facebook page, kind of my own pictures, and I'll, oh, and yeah, I'll yeah. try to. I'll try to just for for listeners if they if they head back to that um, they head back to that. But I'll try to describe it and I'll try to post some uh, kind of what I'm what I am uh, what I'm talking about here. And you know they all have uh, blue heads blue heads with a black eye stripe. And uh-huh. and when they're born they're they're heavily patterned. And I, and I've got a picture of a juvenile on on the page there. And when they're born they're they're really heavily patterned and they lose that body pattern to where They've got this really pretty blue head, and then they're completely patternless, about two thirds of the body, and then the last third of the body turns into this um, this vertical stripe with um, with black on the sides, and it's it's really interesting. And when I would take the adults to shows, I would get a lot where people would look into the the cage and they would say, "Hey, how many snakes are in there?" And it would just be one snake, you know. But be, because they yeah. look kind of like you know three different snakes, they'd say, "How many?" you know, how many snakes are in there? Um, uh-huh. But the kind of what is, um, I'm putting it up right now, the, kind of what is considered the Cameron Highlands or the colored type is uh, it's it's more of a orange um, peach color um, to the base as opposed to like a cream. Like if you look at mine, um, They've got a real creamy white. Go on the website white. right now. 
Yeah. And uh all the Facebook page. Yeah. And uh so that's kind of oh, what, okay. what people people refer to. Okay. They're so beautiful. They're there are I get why people want them, you know, that that phenotype. It's a it's gorgeous, you know. But um, so, so the head's a little bit bluer, bluer, and then they're a little bit more orange. Then. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, did you see the did you did you see the picture that I posted on uh, for the just kind of put it out there that we were um, speaking like right before you came on? That was if you look at that, it's at the top of my feed on Cross Radio, but that's actually one of the prettier ones that I had before I sold it. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what type that was. Or anything, but uh, I remember I was communicating mm. with uh, with the Zirkles uh, last week, and he was mm-hmm. looking at it and he was saying, "Yeah, it doesn't have a whole lot of blue on the head." And I'm like, "Well, I couldn't mm-hmm. tell you because I don't know the difference between any any of them. I know that there was a lot of like blue lavender, like kind of towards the tail, but that was it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I I remember just I love those. I that's the only mm-hmm. snake that's ever escaped and freaked my wife out because it got out one time while she was in the bathroom and she found it in the bathroom <laughs> and she called me home from work and was like, you have got to come get this thing. I'm not touching it. Um, and I was, I was laughing pretty hard, but, uh, yeah, yeah they're, yeah, they're, they're beautiful. So go ahead. Sorry. That, that may or may not have happened in my house as well. <laughs> that's all I'll say. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. um, how how do you how do you keep yours? You you said you have an adult pair, and you just kind of um, doesn't sound like yeah, you so, have to do a whole lot to get them to breed. Yeah, and and the the male the males were game, and um, <clears throat> so kind of the, the rundown. I'll give you the two seasons here is um, in the the fourteen fifteen season. I begin cooling them down at the end of November again. I kind of do a Thanksgiving to February thing, you know, um, uh-huh. roughly start, you know, start cooling them down in, in Thanksgiving and bring them back up in, in February. And again, that was just an ambient cooling. I kept the house cooler. They were on the bottom. They didn't have any heat. Um, and then I introduced the male um, during that cooling period. So uh, I introduced the, the male in uh, December 21st. So a month after I started the cooling period and I, I had heard that that was important, that you needed to keep the males in with the females while you were cooling them. And I did that the two years that I had success. I did not do that this year, and I did not have success. So there there might be something to that. But I feel like, you know, traditional colubrid breeding is you cool them down, you bring them back up, you feed them, and then, you know, after the their first shed or whatever, then you can put them together and then they breed. And that's what I did this year. And I got I got loads of locks, and I didn't get any eggs. So um, so with this species, there might be there might be something to that. So end um, uh, of November, cool them down. End of December, uh, put them together. Uh, Mid February, uh, brought them back up, and I saw locks in March, locks in April, and then I saw more locks, and I just I quit recording them because it was just every time I looked at them, they were locked up, and they would be locked up for for a long, long time, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And then, um, and then she really did this thing to me that, that first year where I, 
I thought she was gravid and uh, maybe she wasn't gravid. And I was like, okay, this is, this is it because she, um, she, she shed at the beginning of, she had two sheds that were really close. And I thought certainly this is the prelay shed and 10 days went by and there was nothing. And I was like, Oh, I missed it. Well, maybe she's not gravid. And then, Two weeks later, she shed again, and then she laid eggs. So she had 15 eggs on June 27th of 2015, and then they hatched on September 12th. So it was 77 days. And I just incubated wow. those in my room uh, at room temperature. So it, it fluctuated from um, from probably 78 to 84 degrees. Um, with you incubated probably, them at room temperature? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I just I put them... Wow. I put them on. Uh, I put them in vermiculite, you know, moist vermiculite, um, in a shoebox, and I put them in my closet. And um, and 77 days they hatched, and I ended up with 10 males and five females. And uh, and then I read a paper um, about um, temperature dependent sex determination in the striped-tailed rat snake. And um, I'll try to link the paper if I can, if I can find it. But um, basically, it, there was a suggestion that in, in Ridley Eye that there may be some sort of sex determination with, as, as regards to temperature. And so I thought to myself, you know, I talked to a lot of other breeders. <clears throat> well, not a lot of other breeders because there aren't a lot of other breeders, but I talked to other breeders, and it seemed like everybody had a high male um, occurrence in their offspring. They were everybody was male heavy, and so I thought, okay, next time I do it, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can cool them down. I don't want it to get over 80, and I want to see if um, if maybe it'll be different. Um, and so in the next year, I followed a, a very similar similar schedule in which uh, I introduced the male in mid-December, and then I began cooling them down at the end of December, and um, I think Austin was just extremely hot that year. And then February, I brought them back up, and then all throughout March, they were locked up. And in May, the end of May, so May 29th, she laid 13 eggs. Um, And she, the first year, she laid outside the lay box. I had a lay box and and everything ready for her, and she didn't lay in the lay box. Um, and I just kind of made a note of that. And then the next year, she laid in the lay box, but she didn't lay them all at once. So she she laid like an infertile egg, and then a couple of days later, she laid most of the clutch. And then about four or five days later, um, I palpated uh, an infertile egg out, and then like two more came out. So it was 13 eggs total, but only um, only four of them were good and only three of them hatched. But of oh, wow. those three, all, all of them were females. And so what I, did, what I did that year is, and I know I realize that's an extremely small sample size, um, but with those, um, it was just really strange. I had, I had the four eggs, but mold began attacking um, two of them immediately. And so I... I just kept removing the mold on a, kind of on a, you know, every other day basis. And I didn't want to throw the eggs out because they had veins in the eggs and I figured they were good eggs. And I didn't want to throw them out. And, um, and they ended up hatching, uh, but it was 80, it was 81 days. 
and attribute the longer incubation to um, to definitely cooler temperature. So what I did here is I had a basement in South Carolina, and I had put the eggs in my incubator in the basement with the incubator off. And so it was right there at like 78 degrees, and uh, and 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 they were all female. So it, it's something that um, that uh, that that I find interesting. If you know, maybe it's I'm not saying it's it's 100% right, but um, <laughs> there's got to be some correlation then. You know, whatever yeah, temperatures you're, it, it, you're. Go ahead. Yeah, but yeah, if, uh, like I said, I don't know if it's 100% right, but if I were, you know. If I had eggs again, I would definitely do my best to keep them cool to try to get that that more even sex ratio. And they were big babies, 81 days. They were big babies as well. And they take off feeding for you pretty easy on mice? If you have live, live, um, it's it's so much easier if you can start them out on live. The... The first year, I don't remember having a lot of a lot of trouble, but the the second year with those three, it, it seemed like they were they were a lot more trouble than the year before, and um, I never had to I never had to force feed them or anything. I I did assist feed a couple, and and they were fine to assist feed. As soon as you got it in their mouth, they they would eat it. Uh, it was just it was just doing that, and they're usually the babies aren't. Um, they're not difficult to get to strike. And so if you can strike feed them, you know, if you have the patience to do that and you can strike feed them and, and to where they'll they'll hold on to the, the animal and, and finally eat it, you know, um, that's better. But I think I, I wouldn't say they're difficult uh, to start, but but sometimes you might have to do some tricks. You know, you might have to try live and you might have to do some drop feeding and, you know, maybe worst case scenario you'll have to um, – you know, either wait them out or or assist feed a couple times before they take off. But I have a actually, oh man, uh, one of my customers. He he just wrote me last month and he said that um, his offspring that he got last year is over four feet long already. So in one Holy year, cow, they, it, 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 he grew, he grew it to four feet. And he said, according to him, he he hasn't been power feeding at all. He said I just I feed it an appropriate size meal. I think he said once or twice a week or something. I mean, it really, when he told me, I was like, no, that's not power feeding at all. That's, that's fine. But yeah, he said it's four feet long already. What's the maturity like on them? You know, I can't, I I can't speak to that. You know, I can't speak to that because, uh, I got, I got my breeders as adults and, um, I haven't raised babies up from, I haven't raised babies up. And in fact, I, um, I passed my group along. I've sold, um, I sold my group. So the, the sub-adult female that I was growing up, I really thought she was going to be ready to go this year. And, and I got locks out of her as well. And, and she didn't go this year as well. Um, but I ended up, um, I ended up moving on with that project. So I, I passed it on, but gotcha. uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. So you just, you just got to where they didn't make the cut cause you had, higher priority species you were working with or was there something about them that you found to be kind of frustrating? The the frustrating part was um, that 
they were all, I mean, they're only, you know, maybe 5% of my collection, but they were responsible for probably 50% of the smell. And I'm not to, not to say that they're, um, that they're an extremely messy colubrid or anything like that, because that, that that's a false assumption. But just in, in my experience, or, or maybe it's just me, like the, their, their urates were just more noxious to me. And, uh, and I knew if I went in that, uh, I was like, Oh, it's definitely the cave dwelling rat snakes. You know, it's definitely, the cave, you know, I, I got to clean that cage. And, and I'm, I believe I, I'm kind of leaning towards this, that you could, you could take that cage and, and they would poop in the same corner every time. And then I could clean the cage out and they would immediately go over and poop in that corner. <laughs> and, and I, I wonder a lot if it has some sort of territorial, um, if that's some sort of territorial behavior, like marking their territory or, or, or something of that nature. Like a dog. Because, yeah. 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 And, um, I mean, a, a lot of animals do it, so I don't know why necessarily it would be, uh, you know, snakes wouldn't do it, but I've heard that from other keepers as well that, you know, I mean, how many times have we spent all day cleaning your snake room? And then as you're cleaning, you can hear the snakes pooping in, uh, in the clean cages, you know, right behind you. Um, so frustrating. And <laughs> yeah. Oh, Oh, fear infuriates me for sure. And, you know, maybe there was something to that, but, but I thought it was really interesting that it, it, it wasn't random, but they would, they would generally poop all in one corner. And if I put two snakes in together, they would both poop in that one corner and, uh, and yeah, it was just really, really kind of interesting, but, but, uh, I, I really, really enjoy them and, uh, I was really pumped to, to have them and everything, but, um, yeah, right now I'm just, uh, really excited about the, uh, the cat snake projects that I have and, um, kind of expanding that and, and, you know, there's only so much room, so they had to go. Yeah. I mean, you have to pick and choose. There's only so many hours in the day yeah. that you can work in your snake room. Might as well make it yeah. a species that you're totally jazzed about. So, yeah, well, cool, yeah. man. Well, you know, I've kind of reached the end of what I kind of wanted to go through and go over. Um, did you have anything else that you wanted to add or anything before you we close? Um, I I kind of like to hear about your uh, your Central America exploits. I think that's pretty interesting. <laughs> I think you have a I think you have a, a, a very unique, um, you know, a unique experience having lived there. Yeah, you know, and I don't know why you were there. I don't, I don't know the, the, um, the background behind that. But um, that's always something that, that I aspired to, or that I really wanted to do, or that I thought I would do. Because I, I studied abroad in Costa Rica when I was in college, and I just thought, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna go make enough money, and then, and then be one of these expats that, you know as a serpentarium in the, in the whole, in the rainforest or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, I was there for religious reasons. So, um, mm-hmm. it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I mm-hmm. spent most of my time, um, um, Manaus, Brazil. Um, okay. But, uh, let's see. I was down, I went down to Sao Paulo for, uh, like a little over a month. And then I flew up to Manaus, which is like the home base of where I was going to be at. And from Manaus, I spent a few months in uh, Rio Branco, which is in the state of mm-hmm. Acre, which borders uh, Peru. And then okay. I spent some time in a little town in a state 
below the state of Amazonas in Brazil called uh, Vilhena. And Vilhena is in the state of Hondonia. And that borders Bolivia. On the, so Bolivia is to the south. That's the fact. Vilhena actually kind of borders Bolivia um, somewhat. And then I went up to uh, Bol Vista, which is in the state of Horaima, which is just south of uh, Venezuela. Um, it's about, mm-hmm. I, don't, I think it's like an hour and a half or a couple hours south of uh, Caracas. And uh, okay. then I spent more time in, in Manaus. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, I wasn't there to study wildlife, but uh, wildlife is such a part of the region that you it doesn't really matter why you're there. You're going to see it. Like I, I remember uh, like when I was, when I was walking down the street one day, I think, you know, I think stuff got real when I was walking down the street and there was a seven foot um, red tail boa that was roadkill on the side of the road. Uh, yeah. Kind of like, yeah, it was kind of like, all right, this is not the U.S. <laughs> I'm going to see a lot more. And um, I, I mean, I ran into monkeys all the time, like, you know, uh, exotic, you know, parrots and macaws and uh, sloths and stuff. And I even mm-hmm. saw some um, Amazon tree boas while I was down there. Uh-huh. Um, cool. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was pretty neat and uh, kind of a surreal experience um, because, you know, I was in an extremely poor area, um, mm-hmm. but um, the jungle's so dense. I mean, like, I, I still think that, like, that, I mean, you know, kind of what happened to the Native Americans back in, like, the 1800s and whatnot there, that was kind of happening. Let's see, I was there from 2000 to 2002. So um, mm-hmm. it was happening during that time there. So there was Native mm-hmm. tribes that were living in the jungle that still had never seen uh, white people before or were still so mm-hmm. isolated from from modern medicine and modern-day civilization and stuff that, you know, they were very much uh, preserved in their traditional way of life. And, yeah, it, it, it was fascinating. Uh, it was really, really cool. And it's not something that I would um, – I mean, I'd love – I haven't been back since then. I would love to go to Brazil and kind of see some of the other parts, you know, like some of the beaches and stuff. Um, I have yeah. a little bit of a desire to go back to where I was at, but I know that there's so mm-hmm. much poverty and stuff there that um, it was, you know, it's not like you're going to go on a vacation there. It's probably not right. the, the place to go, you know. It, um, right. But uh, still still really cool nonetheless. And uh, the people there, I, I, I actually got to where I was speaking Portuguese much better than English. So when I got back to the States, uh-huh. my English was horrible. Like I, I messed up on my words and I had a hard time reading and writing in English. Um, it, it was really, really kind of something that I never thought that I would experience, but, um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I'm very, very pro American love, love, love being an American. Um, everything that is America, I love it. Uh, but, uh, I have a soft spot for the Brazilian culture and stuff. Um, and you know, when I got back, being down there and seeing a lot of the wildlife that I encountered just on a day-to-day basis, just whether I was looking for it or not, um, just made me think, oh, man, you know, because I knew I loved reptiles and knew I wanted to work with them. I, I thought, you know, I, I've got to work with stuff that's from this area. Like, it, yeah. it just, I don't know, yeah. the, whole, the whole, you know, some people 
really, I mean, like I, I love Australian python, but I love it. You know, they're, you know, mm-hmm. if, if I was going to look at a python species, I, you know, that, that area seems to be where I gravitate to. But um, when it comes to, you know, any habitat that I could pick that I think is just fascinating from, even though it's beyond just reptile based, you know, it, it's definitely the Amazon basin. I, I just, I love everything about the jungle down there. I, you know, um, we we found tarantulas like wild tarantulas that I remember uh-huh. we would we would have bets on who could you know hold them I mean just stupid stuff that like <laughs> you know it's just like yeah. you know I, I mean I remember my parents sent me I remember I wrote a letter to my parents and I was like you know we I did we weren't using internet much back then but I remember I was like hey you know there are roaches everywhere down here I mean they're like massive and you know I have I do not like roaches. That's like the one bug that I just really, really despise. Um, yeah. And I'm like, could you guys send me something? So they sent me some like raid or something like that to put in my house. <laughs> uh-huh. And I woke up the next morning and there was probably like 500 roaches that were like dead upside down on the floor. No, it's <laughs> like I could, I can't, I can't, des- I can't describe it. And, and I remember thinking like, okay, I think I would have rather, rather just be- remained in ignorance and not, Known that there was that many things crawling around me <laughs> at night. Yeah, because you now know? you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah now, now you now know. know. Oh, oh man! But and, you know, like there was a couple times I came home and there were like vampire bats that had flown into my house and were like in my in my sink. I mean, it's just it's just oh, so wow. fo- foreign to what we would think here, you know. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was really yeah. really cool experience. Really cool. Yeah. You, you know, I had a I had a really overwhelming experience trying to herp in Peru, because I you know I herped in Kansas by flipping artificial cover, so flipping trash basically. Yep. And yep. and road cruising. <laughs> yeah, and then road cruising, and so I get dropped off in um, the you know southern P- Peru in the Peruvian Amazon, the Madre de Dios region. There's there are no roads. And there's no trash, you know, and and I'm just it was so completely overwhelming, and I just thought I I don't know how to herp for snakes in their like legit untouched virgin natural habitat, you know. I was like I don't know how to do it, and um and it it because there's just an infinite number of places that they could be, you know, and right. yeah that was that was really overwhelming for me for a long time, and and uh, but when we started we started to, you know, research, um, microhabitat, And then we really started to like look in those places and it was, you know, it was amazing how, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of stuff out there. So, yeah. But yeah. And yeah. That, I'm dying to go back. I okay. really want to go back to the Amazon. And, um, I married a girl that does not like bugs at all. And I, I really, you know, it's like, I really want to share this with you but I don't want you to be miserable the entire time, <laughs> you know? And, uh, yeah. So I'm not sure how to approach that yet. Yeah. I mean, but. my wife loves to travel and so she's been to Costa Rica before and loved it. So mm-hmm. for us, like, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, that stuff's going to be there, but just mm-hmm. focus on the other things and you deal with it as it comes, as it comes, you know? But yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I definitely want to go back too. I mean, I don't want it to sound like I don't want to go back. Um, I miss it a lot. I, I miss the culture and stuff, and I miss you know the yeah. 
the wildlife and everything is very very cool. But um, you know, I we're kind of running out of time, so I did want to kind of wrap okay. things up with you. Um, if you could. Uh, pick one species that you have not worked with that you'd really like to work with. It doesn't really have to be um, a snake species, but any species. And uh-huh. you weren't, you know, limited through funds or like laws that were prohibiting you from keeping them. What would it be? My my gut wrench reaction is that they own peli pythons. You know, um, <laughs> just because you know I, I want. Of... <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I you want everyone else. people don't. Yeah, I want what people don't have, you know. That's kind of what – but there is also a very interesting colubrid um, in Borneo. It's uh, called, uh, I think, Gonyosoma margaritatus or something like that. And uh, I think they call it the, the – I don't even know its common name. But it, it it's phenomenally gorgeous. you got to Google it. It's like, it's like a cross between uh, Central American Spilodes and a Ganyasoma, and it's got, like, rainbow colors, and it's it gets, I think it gets to be pretty big, but um, that's that's pretty neat. And then if I wasn't into reptiles, I'd be into birds. And um, I grew up, I, I read a book called My Side of the Mountain where a little boy runs away from home, and, and uh, he trains a peregrine falcon to hunt for himself. And I always thought falconry mm-hmm. would be uh, would be super interesting and super rewarding and um, with all the history and everything, but... I also know that it's very, very involved. So if I had enough yeah. time, you know, that would be one thing. But, uh, but yeah, those are definitely cool things. So, so realistically, for now, I'm super excited about the Bowiga projects that I've got going on right now. Awesome. Yeah, Bowiga. Awesome. I love them. Yeah. If I could get my hands on uh, uh, divergence, I would probably be ecstatic. Yeah. But yeah. They, <laughs> They come in. You just gotta say, you know, start saving your start saving your saving yeah, up. Yeah, I know. They're like they're like yeah. three grand a pair, I think, or three five hundred a pair or something outrageous. Yep. Yeah. But um, yeah. cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, and uh, you know, you work with a lot of other stuff, so I'll have to bring you back on again. We'll talk some something about a different species that you keep. That'd be fantastic. I appreciate. I appreciate. It, it was an honor. All right, man. Well, take care, uh, Terry. Good luck with everything. Good luck with the upcoming season. And uh, congrats on the baby that's coming next month. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. Man. Take right. care. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, it's been a fun show having Terry on, um, talking annulated tree boas and cave going rat snakes. Um, if you guys have any questions, make sure you can – you can reach uh, Terry through uh, PB Snakes on his Facebook page, or you could reach out to Terry Burwell uh, via Facebook and get a hold of him there. Um, you can reach out to me if you have any questions or if you have any ideas for a future episode that you want to just throw out there. I'd be happy to hear those. Uh, otherwise, I really appreciate the support and, um, you know, the, the influx of uh, uh, private messages that I get on a weekly basis from folks that are that are listening to the show on a regular basis. I really appreciate it. So uh, thanks again, guys, and until next time, you guys have been watching Corrales Radio.
Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home an auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.